0: I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About the World of Stories. Most
1: people, when they're asked, who are you, unless they're asked by a police officer or a customs official, will not give an ID, they will tell their story. And their story will begin in the past and will move to the present, into the future, or jump from future to past to present. These are my desires, these are my experiences, these are my memories, this is where I am now, this is where I'm going to, these are my hopes, these are my disappointments it would be a story
0: there's an old joke about a computer scientist who's wondering whether computers will ever be able to think like people after years of fruitless pondering he finally decides to ask his computer so he types do you think you will ever be able to think like a human being there's a long pause and then the computer answers that reminds me of a story Richard Carney knows what that computer means. He's an Irish poet, novelist, and philosopher, and among his many books is one called On Stories. There he argues that humanity is immersed in stories. Step out of one, and you inevitably step into another. But though we can't stop telling stories, he says, we can take responsibility for the stories we tell. The power of stories... And our power to change them is what today's Ideas program is about. It's the last of three programs about Richard Kearney's philosophy of imagination. The series is presented by David Cayley.
2: In the final scene of Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale, when the statue of Queen Hermione comes to life, Leontes, the penitent king who has wronged her, cries out, If this be magic... Let it be an art lawful as eating. Richard Carney uses this quotation as an epigraph to the first chapter of his book On Stories. He then comments that telling stories might be a magic even more lawful than eating. For while food makes us live, he says, stories are what make our lives worth living. It is only when the jumbled chances of our lives become meaningful and memorable stories, he says, that we become capable of recognizing and changing our circumstances. Richard Carney spoke with me about stories during a longer conversation that we recorded at his home in Boston last year. I began with the obvious question. What is a story?
1: It's the attempt to put together into some kind of pattern, form or shape different, disparate, diverse elements. Okay, this goes back to Aristotle in the Poetics, when he says there's two basic components to a story, what he calls mythos and mimesis. And mythos, hence our word myth, is that patterning, that implotment, that putting into a plot of different items, facts, and so on. And you, you can have just a chronicle of facts, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, like a telephone directory. But as soon as you make sense of the facts, which, of course, we're always doing already because there's no such thing as a pure fact. As Nietzsche rightly said, there are only interpretations of facts. But as soon as we enter into a world and make a world, we're already stitching and weaving a tapestry, a text, which is a narrative text, which is a plot. And we're putting together all kinds of different bits and pieces of our lives, our experiences, our memories into some kind of sequence, beginning, middle and end. You know, if somebody asks you who you are, you tell your story. You don't just give them the facts about your last medical report or your, the size of your fingerprint or whatever. You tell them a story because that's how you make sense of your life. The German, you know, hermeneutic theorists, Stilte and others, Schleimacher, had a phrase called Zu Zusammenhang des Lebens. A story is the hanging together of a life. It's the piecing together of a life. And that's what we do. Very often, of course, we don't know that we're doing that or we don't allow ourselves to know that we're doing that because we like to say, well, no, that's a fact. My identity is a substance, it's not a narrative construct. But by declaring that one's identity, be it personal or national or religious, is a fact or is an absolute truth, rather than a narrative construction that needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed and co-constructed with others, we deny our responsibility for how our nation develops and how we develop and how we come to some kind of understanding of ourselves. I mean, somebody once said that um, a story, mythos, myth, is a way in which a people explains itself to itself and to others. And I think that's true at an individual level and at a collective level. Now, at an individual level, we kind of understand that because when we enter into crisis, we go to a confessor or a counsellor or a therapist or a friend or someone. I mean, maybe we talk directly to God, like St. Augustine. In the confessions but we talk to someone about who we are what we are and why we are and I think you see very often when we go to a counselor a therapist a friend to tell the story of our lives and say this is where we are I don't know how I got here I don't know how I'm going to get out of it I don't know where I'm going to go to we realize that we've been living in a certain kind of a story that we took to be literal we forgot that it was figural and maybe it suited us better not to think of it as figural And that may be a story that other people have imposed on us or we've imbibed from our community or family or inherited. Very often we are a patchwork or a patch quilt of stories woven for us and stories that we we, reweave for ourselves. And I think very often a good therapy or a good counselling or a good chat with a friend will be an opportunity to kind of unweave and unwind unweave and unwind a certain story that was fixed and fixated and the ability to say no I'm not determined by that particular set of plots and patterns I can actually change my life which is what the great stories of art encourage us to do as Rilke says the work of art says to you three words change your life. Dostoevsky wrote about this very possibility of narrative conversion, existential and spiritual conversion in um, Crime and Punishment. Raskolnikov does not have to be a, a, a criminal for the rest of his life. He can be forgiven by Sonia, by God, and remake his life. So that's all about a narrative retelling, remembering of our lives, and opening it up to, to a
2: future, giving a future to the past. Stories as Richard Carney has already said, are told by collectivities as much as by individuals. Nations too give a future to the past by means of a story. In his book On Stories, Richard Carney examines three national narratives, ancient Rome, Britain, and America, and shows how these three great empires have defined themselves, justified themselves, and sometimes imprisoned themselves in stories. Here, he's going to talk about Britain's story in relation to Ireland. He calls it a tale of Siamese twins. One of its essential elements, he says, was the racialized myth of the Anglo-Saxon and the Celt.
1: There was a time when there was a belief that, you know, there were the Celts on the one hand and the Anglo-Saxons on the other. And it was kind of largely foisted upon us by the English who said you know the Anglo-Saxons have reason and logic and um, cold blood and they are destined to rule the world whereas the Irish are the music makers the dreamers of dreams and of course the Irish uh, stepped up to the plate and started singing and dancing and writing plays and putting them on the British stage Oscar Wilde and Sheridan and Goldsmith and Congreve and Shaw and then Beckett and, you know, it went on and on. And of course, they were good at it, too. They would sing for their supper and they'd get it and probably subvert British stereotypes of self-identity and so on as in the importance of being earnest in so many other plays, John Bull's Other Island in the process. But that was kind of the myth that culturally speaking, the Irish were the imaginative, feckless Celts and the English were the austere and disciplined Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And uh, they were destined to rule the world. The Irish were destined to entertain the world. And when it came to the Home Rule for Ireland bill in the 1880s, Matthew Arnold, who culturally thought that the Irish and the Celts were just the greatest geniuses when it came to literature, said, that's all very well. But when it comes to governing themselves, of course, we can't let them do that. And he opposed the Home Rule for Ireland bill uh, with the, the sort of the phrase, the Celts can stay quaint and stay put. He didn't put it like that, but that's a way of translating the general cultural stereotype.
2: The idea that the Anglo-Saxons and the Celts constituted distinct peoples has now been exposed by modern genetic studies as pure fancy. Invasion and migration had long since turned the people of the British Isles into a race of indistinguishable mongrels. But the story was powerful and it had strong institutional support going all the way back to the Middle Ages, to the year 1366. It was then that English settlers in Ireland convened a parliament and enacted the now infamous Statutes of Kilkenny.
1: The Irish were considered beyond the pale, the phrase beyond the pale. The pale was the palisade, a wooden fence around Dublin and environs, and anybody within the pale was gens part of the race that's what it means the people the race the nation the gens which gave rise to gentry gentlemen and so on anybody outside was de gens and to marry outside of the pale was to become degenerate to marry the non-people the non-race the non-nation and that was purely cultural because in fact every time the the English tried to invade Ireland. They became, as the old phrase went, more Irish than the Irish themselves, because they would intermarry, and you know. So the plantations failed again and again until these statutes were set up that created this false division. It was kind of a first instance of cultural apartheid, you could say, where those inside the pale and kept inside the pale would be told to speak in a certain way, dress in a certain way, um, have certain kinds of manners and customs, and those outside would be totally distinguished by having other features of speech and dress and behavior. And this was a legal separation. But in order to reinforce it, you had to pretend that this legal separation had a real cultural standing, that they were culturally separate as races. And then this in turn had to have a biological and political standing so that it was actually a question of, of blood. The gens, as it means from gentus birth, you are a gentleman because you live inside the pale and you are of pure blood. And the day gens are of impure blood. But that was a construction. It's a cultural legal construction which then took hold. And, of course, then with the Reformation, two centuries later, Protestant was attached to the gens, Catholic to the day gens. And that was one of the reasons why it took so many years, hundreds of years, to undo that extraordinary cultural myth invention.
2: The idea of two utterly distinct and irreconcilable peoples began undeniably with the English. But the Irish, beyond the pale, soon constructed a counter-story, a Celtic myth to rival the Anglo-Saxon myth. The two peoples, Richard Carney says, became twins whose stories continually reinforced each other. And on the shared territory of Ulster, he goes on, the twins were joined at the hip. The sticking point once Ireland gained its independence, was the question of who had sovereignty in Northern Ireland. And sovereignty is an all-or-nothing story. Ulster could only be Irish or British, not both. The only way out, Richard Carney says, was to retell the story.
1: Sovereignty was based on the principle of each nation-state has a sovereign status, a unilateral right to self-determination, based on the principle of being one and indivisible. That goes back to Baudin and um, Rousseau, the old social contract. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of the nation is being one and indivisible. Well, of course, we're not one and indivisible. Now, look at Northern Ireland. You can only have peace because it's divisible, because in the sense of shared sovereignty that is British and Irish. Now, before you had an end game, which was the following. Either you have a united Ireland or you have a United Kingdom. If you have a United Kingdom, then British sovereignty is intact, one and indivisible. If you have a United Ireland, which the IRA and the Republicans wanted, then you have Irish sovereignty, one and indivisible. But one excluded the other. Two into one didn't go. So the great breakthrough of the 1998 peace agreement was the ability to imagine a post-nationalist, post-sovereignty situation where you go beyond the exclusive absolutist boundaries and borders of the two nation-states, and you share sovereignty. And that brought about
2: peace. The achievement of a post-nationalist Ireland was something that Richard Carney himself worked for for many years. In the early 1980s, while he was teaching at University College Dublin, he edited a journal called The Crane Bag, which tried to build bridges between North and South. He wrote a book called Post-Nationalist Ireland, in which he questioned the sacrificial myths of Irish nationalism. And he spoke publicly in favor of the idea that was finally accepted and instituted in the Good Friday Peace Agreement of 1998, the idea that the citizens of Northern Ireland should be recognized as both Irish and British. His first and most problematic public presentation of this idea came in 1983 at Dublin Castle, when he and a Northerner called Bernard Cullen addressed an advisory body called the New Ireland Forum. Sometimes it was very contentious. I was called a traitor when I first uh, proposed
1: that. It was televised live on on Irish television. And at the time, even though two of the parties, the Labour Socialist Party and Fine Gael, sort of left of centre party, I knew were supportive of what I was saying. They were kind of allowing me to go out there as a sort of, not a ventriloquist dummy, because I was speaking for myself, but as a, um, a decoy, you know, a um, what's the word I'm looking for, a guinea pig, a, you know, trial run, to see what happened. <laughs> sacrificial and course, lamb? Uh, well, a sacrificial lamb is is pretty accurate too. <laughs> so, of course, the, 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 the walls came tumbling down, and you know, I was a traitor to the nation, I was giving up, you know, pot, my forefathers and Podrick Pierce and the United Irishmen and you know, the Irish Republican Army had fought for for so many centuries. But as it happened, you know, John Hume in Northern Ireland, a man of great, great peace and a worthy winner of the Nobel Prize, I was working pretty closely with him on this. And Garrett Fitzgerald in, in the South, who was a wonderful and very inspiring um, prime minister. And Mary Robinson, who then went on, she was Labour Party at the time. She then went on to become the president of Ireland, the first uh, woman president and a wonderful president she was. She opened up, and and these people, and I was able to help them a little bit, opened up Ireland to the idea of a post-nationalist vision. That we're not confined to to frontiers and barriers and borders. That, in fact, the Irish nation, if we want to talk about a nation, is as cultural as it is political. And there are 72 million people in the Irish diaspora throughout the world, over 40, 40 million in North America, who claim Irish identity or Irish descent or Irish origin of some kind. And, you know, the goal was to widen the frame, open up the debate about what it means to be Irish, to include these people. You know, 72 million people in the world, there's only four to five million living on the island of Ireland. It's very important to to open, it seems to me, the sense of national identity to, to that multiplicity, to that hyphenated sense of Irishness, so that then we can get down to the daily responsible business of politics without tying it up with the very vexed issue of the nation. So I was arguing for a certain separation of the nation from the state and letting the nation float freely, let people have different interpretations of what they mean by the Irish nation, let it accommodate Protestants and Catholics and dissenters as the United Irishmen first proclaimed in the 1790s and let it accommodate uh, immigrant peoples now coming into Ireland since it is such a wealthy country, I think the second of the highest GNP in, in the European Union Uh, So we have Romanians and Arabs and North Africans, all kinds of people coming in. You know, let the let the Irish state function politically and the Irish nation have that more capacious and generous and movable feast sense of identity that I think we need. After all, what is the first book ever written in Irish literature? It is the book of invasions. We're made up of. Of a multiplicity of different peoples coming to our shores. What's the first word ever written in English? The first Irish character ever ever pronouncing a sentence in English. It's in Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth, Captain McMorris, the Irish captain, and what does he say? He says, What ish my nation? What ish he even has a kind of a a H to the is to show this is an Irish guy talking. What is my nation? And that's what it means to be Irish. It's to always ask the question, what does it mean to be Irish? If you ever have the answer and you try to fix it or fixate it to some kind of nation state, sovereign nation-state that's one and indivisible, it's a recipe for war. And it was a recipe for war. And the British were part of it. And when Blair came along and he said, you know, I'm now prepared to accept that Britain is a multicultural, multinational, multi-confessional state. And I'm almost presiding over, as he did, the breakup of Britain into Scottish Assembly, Welsh Assembly, Northern Irish Assembly. That allowing of Britain to move to a post-nationalist, post-sovereignty situation happened to time well and chime well with what we were doing in Ireland, moving towards a post-nationalist solution in terms of the Irish Republic. So the beneficiary of that was Northern Ireland, where finally, after the Good Friday Agreement, Good Friday, of course, was a telling phrase, was finally able to accept the enemy, the other, the stranger. The Irish in the north could accept the British, the British, the Irish, and people could be both if they wanted, which makes
2: perfect sense. Retelling Ireland's story required what Richard Carney describes as a revolutionary breakthrough. This breakthrough was fostered by a changed climate of opinion in Europe generally, with other historic enemies also merging sovereignties. But Carney thinks that it was, above all, a work of imagination. Ireland had to reimagine itself, and this reimagining began with writers like James Joyce, who first challenged the binding myths of nationality, language, and religion. The Good Friday Agreement, when it came at last, was a recognition of a much deeper and more prolonged narrative
1: reworking. As I see it, what politics was doing at that point was catching up with what culture had been doing north and south of the border, where our great poets, playwrights, uh, novelists had for a hundred years and more been arguing that our dual identity as Irish and British, Catholic, Protestant, Nationalist, Unionist, North, South, is a positive, not a negative. And many of our writers had talked about the, and written about the, extraordinary fecundity uh, in, in the coming together of differences. And Seamus Heaney, the Nobel Prize winner, a poet from Northern Ireland, had this wonderful line in one of his poems where he says, he grew up on a farm, of course, in Northern Ireland, two buckets are easier carried than one. I grew up in between. And growing up in between, which in my own small way in the South, I did too, I think. I grew up between two cultures. Uh, Irish-speaking, English-speaking, Protestant, Catholic, Nationalist, Unionist, Irish, English, British, European, what have you. That sense of growing up in between was actually ultimately to prove to be a great healing and a great blessing and a great source of creativity for many, many Irish people rather than a, an invitation to bloodshed and violence and hatred, which it had been for so many Years and indeed centuries.
0: You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio. Today, Irish philosopher Richard Carney talks about stories with David Cayley.
2: Richard Carney's book On Stories is concerned in the main with human affairs, with stories that individuals tell about themselves or that nations tell about one another, like the Irish and the English. But stories are told about the world beyond the human as well. And Richard Carney has dealt with these mythological realms in a companion volume called Strangers, Gods and Monsters, to which I now want to turn. Here, Carney is concerned with things that exceed our understanding, with the divine, the uncanny, the sublime. But his point, in a sense, is the same as it was in the earlier book, that we need to engage with the products of our imaginations if we are not to become their victims.
1: What interested me was the idea that when reason reaches the point of no return and No further can I go, enigmas arise, and these haunt us. And three names for these enigmas of figures that go beyond the limit of what can be thought philosophically are strangers, gods, and monsters. And um, I was interested in suggesting that rather than consigning strangers, gods, and monsters to irrationality or to some kind of primitive superstition, or to nightmares at night, or to caricatures of the enemy in war, or to denunciations of other people's false gods and graven images, that we should nonetheless try to conduct some kind of dialogue with these figures, that it's not enough just to consign that to silence or paralysis. What I really wanted to do was to try and take the fear and the threat out of these figures of otherness that go beyond the limit of human reason and to suggest that there are other ways of coming at them through metaphor and myth and symbol and narrative and in the process develop some kind of conversation with these figures of otherness in a way to try and build bridges. That's, that's what I see the work is doing to try and build bridges, a bit like Jacob's ladder that goes up and down between our realm of understanding and some other realm, whatever you call that realm, you know, a transcendental other world, heaven, Valhalla, nothingness, you know, there's different names you can give to this other realm beyond what is thinkable and knowable. But in any case, I wanted to follow the model which I kind of call the hermeneutic model of interpretation, where these are not evident meanings, these are not transparent meanings with with an evident, clear and distinct sense, they are doubled meanings, multiple meanings. They come in different ways in different guises and disguises. And of course, in Jacob's dream, in in the biblical episode in in Exodus, I think it is, it's angels going up and down because that's what angels do, you know, Uh, they're metaphors for Angelos, you know, bringing messages from the human to the divine, the transcendent and vice versa. So I wanted to suggest that ladders and bridges and connections and traversals are possible between what's knowable and unknowable. I want to keep the notion of transcendence, but suggest that there are two-way tickets back and forth between the two worlds.
2: Richard Carney wants to interrogate the strangers, gods and monsters that swarm continually out of our imaginations. He acknowledges that there is something that surpasses our understanding, what he calls the transcendent, but he doesn't simply take it at face value. His is a middle way, neither denying the gods nor quailing helplessly before them. It's the way of interpretation, of careful sorting and sifting, in which one hearkens to the other world, but talks back as well. And such a path is more necessary than ever, he thinks, after the virtual apocalypse of nine eleven. Otherwise, he says, the United States and the West generally are in danger of being trapped in the same mindset as their enemies.
1: Clearly, al-Qaeda were determined to prove that they had the gods on their side and the West's basically was composed of monsters and America, Israel was the little monster, the little Satan and America was the big Satan, the big monster. So what do you do when you have absolute good on your side? Well, you you kill. You conduct a crusade or a jihad or a counter-crusade and you kill, which is what Al-Qaeda did in uh, September 11th. And then the question was, how would the West respond? And unfortunately, at least in part, this is my thesis in the book, it responded in kind. That is, it joined the apocalyptic discourse of crusade, jihad, and off we went in pursuit of the monster. And of course, it was interesting how the the notion of the monster morphed from bin Laden initially to Saddam Hussein. When bin Laden couldn't be found in his cave, he just kind of disappeared, volatilized into thin air as sometimes supernatural monsters tend to do, you know, demons have an ability to, you know, be there one moment and gone the next. Then it morphed into Saddam Hussein and he became the monster. And the word terror became a word to justify a war rather than think about it and think about the causes of it and think about the alternatives of dealing with the enemy because no doubt there's an enemy out there who wants to kill and did kill in the case of September 11th and in other cases. But rather than... As Spinoza, uh, you know, the enlightened Jewish philosopher, bade us to when faced with something enigmatic, he says, do not complain, do not rejoice, try to understand. And I think there was a a singular and egregious failure of understanding in that instance and a slipping into a kind of an ideology of apocalypse, which in a sense is a covert religious ideology. And so the war on terror becomes a war about something unthinkable, unnameable. It becomes a war about strangers, gods and monsters. What I'm trying to suggest is that behind strangers, gods and monsters, in the instance of that apocalyptic scenario that Bush pursued and Al-Qaeda, of course, were pursuing all the time of, you know, we are the pure, you are the impure, we are absolutely good, you are absolutely evil, we are angels, you are devils. Behind that scenario, there was also another motivation it seems to me which is not just to punish the evil enemy in this apocalyptic way but also to unite the people and I had moved here to the states from Ireland maybe one or two years before uh, 9-11 and I was incredibly struck by the nationalist fervor that flourished in and proliferated in the wake of of 9-11. We are all one nation Now, now I come across this in Ireland, you know, a nation once again and so on, but never with the zeal or the fervor that I encountered here.
2: Richard Carney doesn't dispute the monstrousness of the attack on the World Trade Center. What interests him is how indefinite the figure of the monster has remained, how vague the object of a war on terror is, how easily a discourse about evil has displaced sober political analysis. So it's not that there is no monster, he says, but rather that the righteous, on both sides, would prefer not to look the monster in the eye.
1: There's a very interesting um, story I read about Pima Chodron, who is a Buddhist therapist. She tells of how she was um, counseling somebody who was having these nightmares. And she talked to her patient and the patient said, you know, there's this monster that keeps chasing me. And I go into one room and then I lock the door and the monster opens the door. And I go into another one and it goes on and on and on. And this was a recurring nightmare. Eventually, Bhima Chodron said to her, well, what does the monster look like? She said, well, I've never looked. I mean, I'm so terrified. I couldn't look at the monster. She said, well, next time you have the dream, look at the monster. So she did. And she came back and she said, yeah, I had the dream again, had the nightmare. Bhima Chodron said, and, and did you look at the monster? And she said, I did. And what did it look like? She described it in great detail and never had, the, never had the nightmare again. Now, that can be read in different ways, but there is a need in human beings to face the monster and recognize that the monster is actually not that different from ourselves and come into some kind of relationship, even if it's adversarial, with the one we most fear. Another way of doing it is to keep the monster out there and keep it elusive and undefinable, but still give it some kind of a location and a name. But don't make it too familiar, because if you make it too familiar, you'll take the evil out of it, and we need the evil in it. So it seems to me the the dangerous way of relieving anxiety is to scapegoat by putting a name and a face of some kind, but it has to remain quasi-mystical. Because if it's familiar, then that takes, as I say, the, the magic and the, and the, the evil and the, um, the excitement out of it. And the other way is actually to domesticate it, is actually to face it and to try to understand it, which doesn't mean to condone it, of course, uh, but to try and understand it.
2: To understand, for Richard Carney, is, at least in part, to become aware of the power of imagination. It is to stop disowning imagination and acting as if we have some sort of unmediated knowledge of other worlds. It is to recognize the difference between other people and the mythology in which we are so quick to clothe them. The monster must be unmasked, he says, even when the crime is as monstrous as the killing in Rwanda in 1994.
1: These men, women, and children Who went out and slaughtered their neighbors, went home that evening, and caressed each other, and fed each other, and laughed together, and were decent to each other. Now we gotta work out how human beings can do that. The temptation, of course, is to say, oh well, it's not. They're no longer human when they're doing this. They're possessed by a devil. They become monsters. They do become monsters, but why do they become monsters? And they remain human when they become monsters. They are human monsters. That's the conundrum we have to think through. And, and it seems to me that the perversion of the apocalyptic scenario, which takes a very legitimate sense of division between justice and injustice, and literalizes it in a fundamentalist way into, we are the divine elected people of God. They are the demonically possessed and damned evil ones part of an evil empire we're the good empire they're the evil empire where did you last hear that star wars no or did certain american presidents use terms like that that's what's kind of frightening about it and it's not a joke because in a way it has consequences to talk like that i mean you could say well it's just a metaphor you know he doesn't mean it he doesn't really believe in the that it's an axis of evil with a capital e and that they're demonically possessed and that god is really on his side that's just rhetoric well It's rhetoric, but it's a rhetoric that is quite a purchase on a lot of imaginations in this country and indeed in other countries. It's the alliance of belief with power, and particularly imperial power, that I think is very, very dangerous.
2: Carney wants to make the imagination, the storytelling power, conscious. Conscious of this power and aware of our responsibility for exercising it, he says, we become capable of imagining new stories and transforming old ones, as Britain and Ireland did in the Good Friday peace. Unconscious and unwilling to interrogate this power, we can be imprisoned in our stories a prey to gods and monsters. But though Carney believes that imagination, properly interpreted, is a liberating power, he also recognizes its limitations. And it's these limitations that I want to consider in the remainder of the program. Are there things that cannot and should not be imagined? Are we at risk from the overwhelming abundance of images that now surround us? One of the discussions that interested me in Richard Carney's book on stories concerned the first of these questions. Are there things that should not be directly represented? He approaches the question by considering a controversy about cinematic representation. I was
1: very taken by the debate surrounding two films that came out about the Holocaust as two attempts to respond to the question how do we ethically remember such an appalling unthinkable, unimaginable event and Steven Spielberg produced his now very famous film Schindler's List and Claude Landsman, a French filmmaker produced a film called Shoah which was eight and a half hours long Shoah is the Hebrew term for Holocaust and he chose not to use fictional scenarios or professional actors to dramatize the scenes as Spielberg had done in Schindler's List. Instead, Landsman decided that the more ethical thing to do was to only use to camera interviews with survivors, both SS survivors, mainly filmed incognito, mind you, and Jewish survivors and so he produced this eight and a half hour documentary which is very difficult to watch it's extraordinarily moving and sort of devastating and painful and is certainly very faithful to the memories of these survivors. Now the question that arises on foot of that is who is more faithful ethically to the event because it seems to me that there are two sort of fidelities here. One is to make us feel how horrible that event was. And at the same time, we've got to know what happened, which first-person testimony, of course, gives you. Even the voice that cannot properly articulate or communicate its experience. The person who breaks down, who can't finish the sentence, who turns their head off camera, who sobs, that is itself a mode of testimony that is so different from the fluent dramatic exchanges and editing of a fictional drama and i suppose the issue is this that landsman is more faithful to what aristotle called phobia the the need to have a certain distance so that you can properly understand what happens but spielberg was more faithful to what aristotle says in any story is also necessary in a tragic story he's talking about which is pathos and elias, it's sympathy, feeling. So Spielberg brings us into the suffering and enables us to suffer with the victims. Whereas Landsman pulls us back, as it were, and we watch, but we can't connect with the characters because it's all too horrible in a way. So there's more distance with Landsman. There's more passion and feeling with Spielberg. And the debate went on, and Lansman was very critical of Spielberg, saying this is typical Hollywood kitsch. And he's using catharsis and all kinds of emotionalism so that v- people who go to the movie, you know, can voyeuristically and vicariously participate in the suffering without taking any of the consequences or taking any responsibility. On the other hand, Spielberg was saying, look, I've got to get this message out to people and... Spielberg's film was shown all over the world it was even discussed in the Senate and in a day of national remembrance of the Holocaust it was shown in every public school and debates followed and even skinheads you know went to see it in Germany and, and many people uh, in Germany did not know the story in that way and in that sort of detail now these are not the people who are going to stay up until two o'clock in the morning to watch some arts channel showing eight and a half hours of pretty difficult a straight documentary. So at the level of communication and feeling and empathy and imagination, I think Spielberg probably did the right thing and was more successful in helping us to remember what happened so that it will never happen again. On the other hand, it's probably true that a certain aesthetics of distance and discrimination and understanding and pure witness that is faithful to the cold facts was better represented by Landsman. So it's a very tricky one in terms of how do you use imagination to recall
2: such an event. Richard Carney makes a good case that Schindler's List manages to strike a successful balance between ethical purpose and the dramatic demands of popular movie making, And I think he's generally more of a populist, more tolerant of popular culture than many of his fellow philosophers have been. But he does recognize that the imagination faces a unique threat today, from the sheer volume of song, story and image that now pours down on us. I think the
1: sort of wall-to-wall culture of simulation that we have now, where everything seems to be immediately available through the Internet, through video, through computers, whatever, there is a danger that the very distinction between the real and the imaginary disappears altogether. And that is something that, you know, in the wake of imagination and and in non-stories too, I, I look at this collapse of the distinction between the real and the imaginary in our postmodern age, where everything becomes mere simulation, such that you even get a philosopher like Baudrillard in France saying the Gulf War was a TV war. Well, sorry, you know, there were people out there who got killed on both sides in those desert nights, as the bombs descended. So there's kind of an hysteria of of simulation and simulacrum where everything is a copy. Uh, Even in the, you know, our access to the art world, you know, Andy Warhol tried to say, look, you know, we're living in a culture of copies and everybody, he produced all these multi-series of, you know, the heads of Marlon Monroe and Jackie Kennedy and Coca-Cola uh, bottles and Campbell soup tins, and everybody says, isn't this great? And suddenly, you know the very the very critique of simulation becomes a cult of simulation. And even reality TV shows, you know, this kind of a camp sense of a collapse of the distinction between the real and the imaginary. There's nothing sacred, private, untranslatable into simulation or exposure or exhibition of some kind through this civilization of the image. So yes, I am, certainly worried about that but a curious thing I've noted is this strange collusion between post-modernity in the West and fundamentalism in the so-called East, although as you know we have it in the West too, and it's this that post-modernity or a certain version of it collapses the distinction between the real and the imaginary and says everything is now imaginary, conflates the two subsumes reality into simulation image fundamentalism collapses the distinction also by saying there's nothing imaginary. Everything is to be taken literally, including the satanic verses by Salman Rushdie, including Kazanzaki's books and movies, whether it's Christian or Islamic fundamentalists, the argument is there's no distinction between the real and the imaginary. But in this instance, we collapse the imaginary into the real. And in a way, in both cases, the failure to discriminate and distinguish and discern what is being done at the level of fiction and fantasy and image and what is actually happening on the ground in real people's lives is one of the great dangers of our time. And fundamentalism and postmodernism collude in their different ways in that collapsing of that incredibly important differentiation between the real and the imaginary. And if we lose that, then we're in deep trouble. I think we're in trouble aesthetically
2: as well as ethically and politically. So, what's your own view then about the need for a certain renunciation or a certain... I think it's very important for imagination to revivify the
1: real and bring it to life and open up possibility. But I think it's also very important for imagination to recognize its limits and that there are points at which it must attend to the real and acknowledge that there are things in reality that we cannot adequately imagine we can gesture towards them we can indicate them we can make motions towards them but we can't capture them And that's true of the otherness of another person. I can use my imagination all I like, but there's something about the reality of the other person will always escape me. There's something about the reality of God. If I believe in God as an absolute other, that will always escape escape me. Now, I need images, parables, myths, stories, because that's my way of accessing God. But there's always something about the otherness of the other person, the otherness of God, the otherness of suffering to come back to the case of the Holocaust or war, they will always escape my imagination. And I have to be dutiful to that line or limit in the sand that says, I can imagine so much, but no more. And there's something that will always remain unimaginable beyond this line. So that when it comes to strangers, gods and monsters, there'll always be something strange about the stranger that I can never adequately capture in images. The same about the monster. There'll be always something about evil that I will never be able to fully explain away. And even Kant knew this. You know, he called it radical evil. There's something just incomprehensible. How could people do this? And we've got to try and understand that. But the imagination cannot always do that work. And likewise, it seems to me, when it comes to gods, we've also got to be humble, I think and vigilant about overstepping the mark and reducing God to our image, because some of the greatest crimes in our history and in the known history of humanity have been caused by people creating God in their own image. And that reversal can be a very, very pernicious and dangerous reduction.
2: The imagination, Richard Carney says, eventually reaches a limit in the gospel scene of Jesus' transfiguration, which Kearney has analyzed in his book, The God Who May Be, Jesus suddenly appears as nothing but a dazzling whiteness before which the imagination completely fails. Kearney compares this passage to a chapter in Melville's Moby Dick called The Whiteness of the Whale. There, Melville speaks of the whale's color as a dumb blankness full of meaning. It means more than can be said or pictured. Again, the imagination falls short. And when it reaches this limit, Richard Carney says finally, it can only wait on the other.
1: When the imagination goes on sabbatical, for example, and rests, what it does is it listens. It listens to the real. It becomes an auditory imagination rather than a productive imagination. And Eliot spoke about the auditory imagination in that kind of wonderful way that it attends to the real, it's open to the real. But to do that, it kind of has to become inoperative in any productive sense of projecting and creating and fictionalizing. And it just has to say, now I'm on holidays or on strike. I'm out of order. And I'm just listening. I'm listening to what my senses tell me to what the world tells me I'm suffering rather than acting if you will and as human moral agents we are actors and sufferers and all too often imagination only goes into gear on the active front and doesn't sufficiently go into passive mode go into receptive mode where it becomes vigilant to and sensitive to and susceptible to realities that it could never have dreamed of you know there is more in heaven and earth than you have ever dreamt of horatio I've Gotten the exact line but there's always something more about heaven and earth than we could ever dream of and of course in attending to the reality of suffering of evil of of goodness of otherness that in itself is once the week begins again and we come out of this sabbatical rest and receptivity and passivity of suffering, as in the sense of suffering little ones to come unto me, suffering the world to to reveal itself to me. It doesn't have to be painful suffering, it could be suffering in the sense of receiving. When we go back into our ordinary weekdays again, we go back to work, go back into active, performative, productive, creative mode, we should be reminded that there's something else out there that our imagination has not sufficiently responded to and therefore we must become more responsible again as imaginative beings in the sense of trying to respond better to that reality out there and how do we do that imaginatively we do it with more images and then more ideas and more projections that's how we do it but always reality will be ahead of the posse Leading imagination to a new promised land, and a new promised land, and a new promised land. And that's what's messianic, if you like, about the reality-imaginary relationship. That the reality of the kingdom will always be ahead of what we can imagine. So we must always imagine more, knowing we'll never get there. It's a bit like a Beckett play, waiting for God, you know. You keep on imagining that God is going to turn up tomorrow, but as the Gaelic word says, good Joe." it means you're waiting forever and we will always be waiting forever imagination will be imagining forever unless it comes to a full stop when it comes to a full stop we're in trouble because then it thinks it has completed its duty of imagining possibilities and it takes itself as an end in itself and then it totalizes itself and it becomes megalomaniac and then we're in trouble. Then the good imagination, as it were, has slipped back into the evil imagination. We become self-sufficient, egocentric, closed off from others, incapable of listening to the other. So the auditory imagination is just as important as the productive imagination, it seems to me. Why? Because it is more open to the alterity of the real and the reality of otherness.
2: Well, I'm very happy to end with a speech about listening. Right. (laughs) It's a good way to end a radio program. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, David.
0: On ideas you've listened to the third and concluding episode of the God who may be a conversation with philosopher Richard Kearney he's a professor of philosophy at Boston College and at University College Dublin the program was produced and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Richard Handler our thanks to Nathan Lowen of McGill University for the introduction to Richard Kearney technical production by Dave Field Associate Producer, Liz Naj. Audio copies of this series on cassette or CD are available for $34, taxes and shipping included. A printed transcript is $19. To order, you can call 416-205-7367 or write to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. Our email address is ideas at cbc.ca. If you'd like to find out what's coming up on Ideas, you can sign up for our weekly online newsletter. Just go to our website at cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links to weekly newsletter. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 and to Sirius Satellite Radio for the hourly news.